Draw near together, ye that are escaped of the nations, that have no knowledge, they have no knowledge, that set up the wood of their graven image, and pray unto a God that cannot save. Tell ye, and bring them near. Yea, let them take counsel together. Who hath declared this from ancient time? Who hath told it from that time? Have not I the Lord, and there is no God else beside me? A just God and a Savior, there is none beside me. Look unto me, and be saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God, and there is none else. I have sworn by myself, the word is gone out of my mouth in righteousness, and shall not return. That unto me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear. Surely shall one say, In the Lord of I righteousness and strength. Even to him shall men come, and all that are incensed against him shall be ashamed. In the Lord shall all the seed of Israel be justified, and shall glory. John Calvin, in speaking about the third commandment, Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. For the Lord will not hold him guiltless that taketh his name in vain. Made in passing this observation as central to his thesis. And I quote, We shall soon see that to swear by God's name is a species or part of religious worship. And this is manifest, too, from the words of Isaiah 45, 23. For when he predicts that all nations shall devote themselves to pure religion, he thus speaks, As I live, saith the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall swear by me. End of quote. Calvin then goes on to say, as he discusses this passage in Isaiah, which we just read, in particular, the 23rd verse, which is the key verse in the passage, that God prophesies certain things. First, that history will culminate in God's absolute lordship over all men and nations. Every knee shall bow to God. Now this does not mean, as Calvin points out, citing Isaiah in a number of passages, that everyone in the world will be a believer. What it does mean is that Christian faith shall triumph, and everyone the world over will acknowledge the sovereignty of God whether they believe in him or not, because it is the people of God who rule. It is the law of God which prevails. It is the righteousness of God which is declared in every nation. Thus, there shall be from end to end throughout all the earth the sovereignty of God manifested and the law of God governing. 
Secondly, Isaiah declares in this passage, or God declares, speaking through Isaiah, that unto me not only shall every knee bow, but every tongue shall swear. In other words, an oath in the name of the God of Scripture shall be the universal oath in every nation, in every court, for every office. God declares that this constitutes a form of worship. Thus we see that oath taking is declared by scripture to be a form of worship. So that when George Washington took the first presidential oath of office and he knew exactly what he was doing, he was worshiping the God of scripture and declaring that his term of office would be an attempt to magnify God and to govern in a godly manner. Now, as Calvin goes on to interpret the third commandment, he points out that in terms of this passage in Isaiah, it is silly to restrict the meaning of the third commandment to the use of the name Jehovah, that is, any profanity which uses God's name. Calvin declares that profanity means any activity outside of God, outside of the temple. And blasphemy is any activity conducted outside of God and in contempt of his sovereignty. Any trifling use of reality apart from God is thus blasphemy. When men do sometimes tremendous and awe-inspiring things, but they do it in the name of man, they are guilty of violating the third commandment. When they attempt to play God as they deal with life, they are again guilty of blasphemy. This last week, for example, the papers reported that scientists are planning soon to be able to tell any expectant mother whether her child is going to be a boy or a girl. They will remove the embryo from the uterus, examine it to see whether it will be male or female, and if they don't like the sex, it will be killed. If they do, it will be reimplanted. They claim that in a few years they may be able to do this, that they have done it experimentally, sometimes with success with rabbits. Now this constitutes blasphemy. It is a trifling use of reality and contempt of God. It is taking the name of God in vain. The commandment says, Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. Thou shalt not, therefore, deal with any reality 
in vain, in vanity, in contempt of God and his law. We must take God's name in truth. We can see, therefore, how trifling a great deal of preaching is on this subject. I've known a number of ministers who went after all kinds of slang expressions as though they were blasphemy. For example, I can recall one minister in particular, and incidentally, the last time I saw him, I almost threw him out of the house because of flagrant lying, who was deaf on anybody who said, Dear me. Now, when you trace Dear Me back to its origins a couple of centuries ago, we find that various people from Latin countries who were in England very often said in their language, My God, Deo Mio. And the English parodied it and made fun of it, Dear Me, and it became Dear Me, a kind of a joke at these immigrants who were in England. But some of these clergymen will tell you that if you say, Dear me, which is an utterly harmless expression, you are guilty of violating the third commandment. Isn't this being trifling? Isn't it taking the name of the Lord in vain to preach something like that with all the wickedness and evil round about us? Similarly, some clergymen will say that the expression not worth a damn is profanity. Well, is it? For one thing, the damn there is not D-A-M-N, as in damnation, but it is D-A-M. It has reference to the smallest coin in India. It's like the French expression not worth a suit. A suit was the most insignificant of French coins, so insignificant it has disappeared, no longer coin. And the dam is the smallest coin of India. And various Western troops, especially the British troops stationed in India, when they wanted to say they couldn't care less or a thing was totally worthless, they said, not worth a dam. That's a good expression. We might soon be saying not worth a penny and mean the same thing. And before long, not worth a dollar. Isn't it trifling to reduce the third commandment to such nonsense? Well, a good deal of preaching today, we had better say it's not worth a damn. Now, as we analyze the meaning of the third commandment, we must remember that the temptation of man at the beginning was, you shall be God, knowing, that is, determining for yourself good and evil. Man, when he separated himself from God with the fall, began to define reality in terms of man and in the name of man rather than in the name of God. When men began again to call upon the name of the Lord, 
we are told that men again began to look to God as their Lord, as their Creator, their Savior. They saw him as their only Redeemer, their only lawgiver, their only hope, and they brought all of life under the dominion of God. This is what it meant to call upon the name of the Lord. So, to keep the third commandment, to call upon the name of the Lord, to take the name of the Lord in truth, is to bring all things under the dominion of God and his work. But to take the name of the Lord in vain is to deny in reality the only true God, to make an empty profession of him, to treat every lost fear as though it had nothing to do with God, as though politics, economics, science, education were independent spheres, independent of God. Modern politics is guilty of blasphemy. Modern education is guilty of blasphemy. It is not under God, not in his name. And some Christian schools are guilty of blasphemy because they are conducted in the name of the Lord, but the sovereignty of God in every sphere of study is not manifest. Some generations ago, a German scholar, Ehler, remarked, perjury does not concern the transgressor alone, but his whole race. Why? Because it moves man and his society from the world of blessing to the world of the curse. It takes man out from under God's name and puts him under man's name and it moves the foundations of society. True swearing is therefore true worship. It ascribes to God the glory due to his name. Thus we see the relationship of the oath to society is a tremendous one. When the oath is weakened, when its sanctity is destroyed, then society is in revolution. And so it is that our world today is in transition from Christian society to a totally revolutionary society. For this reason, the ancient horror of any blasphemy of the oath, of a false oath, is understandable. Before we became a revolutionary society, that horror of blasphemy characterized all of our society. In modern times, that sense of horror has disappeared. You remember when the high priest, although he was being a hypocrite, accused Jesus of blasphemy, what a demonstration he put on, a sense of total shock. Now, he was being hypocritical, but he was mirroring what society felt about blasphemy. Because blasphemy was a revolutionary attack on the foundations of society. 
In recent times, that sense of blasphemy has only survived in one or two places. Before World War II, it existed in Japan. Any blasphemous use of the name of the emperor or of Shintoism created a tremendous shock in all of Japanese society. Now that it's disappeared, we have destroyed it without supplying it any other foundation. And so it is, the situation in Japan is a precarious one today. As long as they have prosperity, they will go along as at present. But revolution is under the surface, and we are responsible for it. Because the horror of blasphemy of the false oath is gone, so is the definition of treason. Two or three books have been written on treason in recent years, trying to define what is treason. And they no longer can. Since there is no longer a true oath in any society, there is no true sense of responsibility. To whom are you responsible? There are two great claimants to responsibility today. On the one hand, the totalitarian state, which says everyone is absolutely accountable to us. They make themselves God. On the other hand, the anarchistic individual who says, my conscience is absolute and you cannot violate my conscience, the totalitarian individual. And so to today society is caught between these two totalitarian forces, the state and the individual, the anarchistic individual, and it is falling apart. Now Rebecca West, who by no means is a conservative, in her book on treason, the meaning of treason, the new meaning of treason, declares at the beginning as she analyzes the past definition, and I quote, according to tradition and logic, the state gives protection to all men within its confines and in return exacts their obedience to its law. And the process is reciprocal. When men within the confines of the state are obedient to its laws, they have a right to claim its protection. It is a maxim of the law quoted by Coke in the 16th century that protection draws allegiance and allegiance draws protection. It was laid down in 1608 by reference to the case of Shirley, a Frenchman who had come to England and joined in a conspiracy against the king and queen, that such a man owed to the king obedience, that is, so long as he was within the king's protection. Unquote. Now this is the historic meaning. And it had a significance. It meant that men and society were responsible under God. And therefore, being first of all responsible to God to fulfill his requirements, each had under God a responsibility one to the other. 
anyone dwelling within the confines of a country and having its protection owed an allegiance to that country. Thus, even if you are an alien, as long as you are within the borders of that country, you could be guilty of treason because you had the protection of that country while doing business there or while living there or while traveling through that country. Therefore, you owed that country an allegiance to obey its law. Similarly, since there was a mutual responsibility under God, the country wherein you were owed you a responsibility, protection. And you had the right to go to court and sue for that protection. What would this mean today? It would mean that as people who are giving faithful allegiance to your country, you have a right to demand protection of your property, of your person, of your family. That if you are not giving allegiance, the country is traitorous to you. But if the country is not giving you protection, it is traitorous to you. In other words, treason works both ways. And why was it, therefore, in terms of this definition, that under Cromwell the Puritans felt they could go to war against the king and execute him for treason? Because he was conspiring against the people, not to protect them, but to destroy them. So the king was executed for treason. There was, thus, you see, a mutual obligation Allegiance, protection. People and state equally under God and having a duty to, to discharge towards one another. But now there is no sense of obligation, no sense of loyalty, no definition of treason. On the one hand, you have the totalitarian state that claims everything and promises nothing. On the other hand, the totalitarian individual who, who exalts his conscience above all things. As a result, these several books on treason which have been written of late conclude by saying it is virtually impossible to define treason today. And the courts reflect this muddied conception. There is no oath. There is no sovereign God above and over men and nations in terms of modern thinking. And therefore, there is no sense of treason. When all the world is black, no concept of black is possible, is it? Everything is black, so how can you define black? There is no differentiation. Only when you have differentiation 
is definition possible? If everything were water, you could define nothing because you would only have a universal sameness. When you reduce the world to relativism, when you say there is no truth and all things are relative, as our courts today have done, or a Supreme Court justice has said, the only truth is that there is no truth. The only absolute is that there are no absolutes. When you have such a situation, no definition is possible. No concept of treason and no concept of crime. And so today, the question being debated in law schools and in the courts themselves is, what constitutes crime? There is no definition of crime now, and the Supreme Court is protecting the criminal increasingly because the Supreme Court does not believe there is such a thing as crime in the criminal. Take away the oath, and you take away an absolute God to whom men are absolutely responsible, all things become relative. And the possibility of defining anything disappears. Now, to define is to delimit or to fence. A definition is a fence. When you define a book, you are by that definition saying this is not everything else in the world. It is precisely this thing. A definition constitutes, therefore, a fence. Now, when you have relativism, you have destroyed definition, fencing. And so all life is totally open. How can you protect the good citizen from the criminal? How can you protect the innocent from the evil, the good from the bad? Protection disappears because the fencing of definition is gone. And this is the end result of the relativism that has set in. Hence it is that we are in a time when there is a necessity for judgment. The judgment of God upon this generation to restore perspective and definition and fencing, protection to the world. We can rejoice as we face the present that we do have God's promise. I have sworn by myself. The word is gone out of my mouth in righteousness and shall not return. That unto me shall every knee bow, every tongue shall swear. The world shall be filled with the righteousness of God as the waters cover the sea. Our Lord and our God, we thank thee that thy judgment is sure.
that this evil generation that destroys all meaning shall be brought to the bar of judgment and condemned. And we thank thee, our Father, that we who are thy people can face the future with a certainty that unto thee shall every knee bow and every tongue shall swear unto thee. That thy law order shall prevail in every nation, in every state. In this confidence, our Father, we prepare ourselves, knowing that the kingdoms of this world shall become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. Our God, we praise thee. In Jesus' name, amen. Are there any questions now? With respect to the lesson, first of all, yes. Right, but you see, this is their problem. They deal with it, giving aid and comfort to the enemy. But who is the enemy? In other words, if everything is relative, the word enemy has lost its meaning. And they can say, maybe the person you regard as the enemy is really the wave of the future and your best friend. So you see, uh, the definition of the Constitution does not hold if words no longer have any meaning. Yes. years ago, Ortega y Gasset defined the new barbarian, which he said took in the modern intellectuals, the scientists, almost everyone. The new barbarian was a man who treated all the blessings of Christian civilization as though they were like the trees of the wood. They were just there. But they were not the product of tremendous effort, character, centuries of development. They were simply another natural resource that was always going to be there. And that is the essence of the new barbarian's outlook. The hippie is a relativist who is being very consistent to the new faith. Nothing has any meaning. All things are relative. Yes. Yes. The profane is that which says it is outside the temple or outside God. Now, in terms of the Bible, nothing is outside God. 
so that the idea of profanity is man's attempt to say, I will live outside God, I will speak outside God, I will conduct all things as though they existed outside God. So that the essence of profanity is, of course, uh, a false premise. Nothing can be outside God. But it acts as though everything were or could be. Yes. interesting book could be written on the oaths of modern government, because not only Hitler and Stalin, but the Western countries have changed the oath very, very extensively in recent years. And gradually, the name of God has been removed and other things substituted, or else where it remains, it's a dead letter. But it is increasingly an oath either to the state or to the head of the state or an oath in which you swear by yourself. So that's a very good point and I wish somebody sometime soon would make a study of the oath of the past 30 years. Yes? When you say there are no Yes, because you see, they regard anyone who holds a faith in God as the enemy. As Chief Justice Vinson said a good many years ago, almost 20 years ago now, the only absolute is that there are no absolutes. So who is the enemy in such a position? You and I. And therefore, they feel the only absolute is that there are no absolutes, so they take an absolutist stand against anyone who holds to God. He has to be obliterated. This is the implication of their position. Yes. A good point. They are swearing to an extent in vain, but not entirely so, because the implication here is they will be kept in subjection by fear. This is pointed out later on in Isaiah. In other words, the sovereignty of God will be so thoroughly exercised that even the ungodly will toe the line. They will be taking it in vain in that they do not in their hearts believe, but they will not dare perjure themselves as they uh, testify. So it indicates a situation of strong government. Now, some time ago in one of my newsletters, I think in the 
which is the fourth or sixth one, a couple, three years ago now almost, I dealt with a particular area of the South Seas, where over a hundred years ago the cannibals attacked an American vessel which was there peacefully trading and uh, killed virtually everyone but two or three men who escaped in a boat. They were cannibals, they were vicious, uh, and they figured they could get away with it. The captain who was notified sailed back there, and he attacked and so thoroughly punished these people that for a generation or more until they became civilized, no cannibal or savage in that area ever dared touch an American. American ships, American men and women could move about freely in that otherwise dangerous area. The reason was they recognized any ship that flies an American flag or any citizen from that country is someone not to tangle with because they don't put up with any nonsense. And we will be thoroughly punished if we lay a finger on them. Now, those people had not changed. They were still cannibals. They were still savages. But they had been disciplined in this area. And this is the kind of thing that Isaiah uh, portrays in his concluding chapters. You see, it isn't a question today of uh, evil being any more dangerous than it was 50 years ago but that the good has become impotent. It has taken off the brakes. It's like a car with the same amount of power but no brakes and with a steering mechanism gone wrong. It's then a dangerous car. Yes. anywhere in the world because he was an American. The same was usually true of a British subject also and one or two other countries. But since World War I and especially since the 30s, this has been fading rapidly because we no longer have any sense of obligation to our citizens. Our government no longer protects you if you're abroad because it no longer protects you at home. You see, it's part and parcel of the same pattern. How much protection do you have here? Do you realize that uh, if you are robbed tomorrow, even though the thieves may be caught, you have very little chance of recovering uh, your property? Because unless you can prove that the TV set has the serial number that you have on your files and the serial numbers on the bank notes, you have them, 
the law says, how do we know it's yours? So the goods will be sold and the state will take the proceeds.
the treatment of some of the curiosities of the church in bygone centuries. And many, many offices uh, that were once common are now gone, like the sluggard wakers, which we had, of course, in New England. The man who went around with a pole to give a rap to anybody who slept. I don't know how they slept, though, in the Church of England, because in the rural districts they had dog nopers, a paid employee of the congregation, and this is, I'll read just a portion of it, uh, his function. In rural districts where the parish was extensive and some of the worshippers from solitary farmhouses lived miles away from the church, something was gained if spiritual profit could be combined with worldly advantage. So the farmer would take a sheep dog with him and look after his flocks and herds by the way. Arrived at the church, the dog entered with him and crouched under his seat for a time until other canine brethren were discovered near at hand. Restlessness usually followed this discovery, then motion, then locomotion, until two or three dogs met in the aisle. There might only be a sniff and friendly greeting, if so, all well. But if the collision produced growls and snarls culminating into warfare, then could the office of dog-noper be glorified. Bearing down upon the combatants, who were oblivious to the cries of their owners, he with his stout cudgel quickly made third man amongst them, and as the beaten dogs slunk to their places to lick their bruises, he returned to his post near the door with a glad heart, proud of having something attempted, something done. And as the congregation settled in their place and the noise subsided, the clergyman resumed the service. When children sing, bells is ringing, cats is singing, and dogs is gone into church, uh, they give us a fairly good picture of the days of the dog noper. When the church bells were ringing for service, the cats were left at home to bask before the fire and sing three thr- uh, thrums on the hearth rug, while the dogs went to church with their masters and lay under the surface of the few until the service was over. And as he goes on to say, it was common for the sermon to be interrupted or the prayer book service three, four, five times with a dog bite. A great many churches, and especially sermons today, that could be improved with a few dog bites. <laughs> One of the uh, regular items of pay in church registers, especially in the accounts of the parish of Great Stockton, Huntingtonshire, I don't know what the situation was in Huntingtonshire, was this, for example, December 1647, item, paid for wages spent upon the man that watched John Pickle all night and the next day till he was married, one shilling. Many changes have occurred in the social and domestic life of England since the days when men had to be watched to prevent them from escaping the married state. Well, with that, we are adjourned.